Welcome to the Tidal Year, a series about the joy of swimming. With the help of some special guests, we'll discover the human stories behind why we swim. Together, we'll share tales from the places that helped us fall in love with swimming. From Lidos to lakes, by leisure centers in the ocean, I can't wait to dive into these magical places. I'm your host, writer, and wild swimmer, Freya Bromley, and every week I'll be chatting to a new explorer, swimmer, author, or campaigner about what water means to them. Before we dive into this episode, I'd like to thank today's sponsor, TryHard. I love being in the water, but I don't love what pool chemicals like chlorine do for my skin and hair. TryHard develop water sports specialized skin and hair solutions that eliminate those negative effects of pool chemicals and ocean salts. I'm thrilled to share with all listeners of the Tidal year a very exclusive 15% off when you use code TIDAL at tryhard.co. In this episode, I chat to author Jessica J. Lee. When she was 28, Jessica found herself in Berlin where she was completing a PhD in environmental history. She was alone and recently brokenhearted when she decided to swim 52 of the lakes around Berlin, no matter what the weather or season. Her first book, Turning, is a beautiful memoir about that experience. It's a story of courage as she discovers her own confidence and independence. And it's written in a way that really only Jessica could. It's reflective, written with this silken prose, and full of sciencey magic about lake stratification and ice formation. Her second book, Two Trees Make a Forest, is also out now. It's a rich exploration of her grandparents' life in Taiwan. In this chat, we looked back on her adventure, including an encounter with some nude winter swimmers yielding an ice axe, and spoke about connecting with new places through swimming, and how to do that in a way that doesn't feel problematically touristic. I also learned a lot about how we can make nature writing more inclusive and hope you find it as insightful as I did. Enjoy. Hi, good morning. Morning, hi Freya, how are you? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to chatting about your book, but I'm also excited to chat a little bit about London and swimming in London because it's been a really long time since I've been to the Hampstead Heath Ladies Pond. And I know that's somewhere that you go a lot, so I'm excited to talk about that too and feel like I've been there. Yeah, I'm such a fan of the ladies pond. And one of the things I love about it most is that even if you don't go there for a really long time, it can be months, it can be, you know, a year or two, there's some kind of consistency about it that when you do go back, the community is there. I mean, obviously, it's changed a lot this year with the pandemic, but there is still something of that like essential quality of ladies pondness that you can always come back to even if you've been away a long time. Definitely. I think a big part of that is the lifeguards as well, because they always feel like very familiar faces and always warm faces, always, you know, checking in if you're okay. I remember the first time I went, actually, someone said, I think I must have walked up to the steps with a lot of trepidation because they said, is it your first time here? And I kind of feebly nodded and they said, okay, go from one step to the other and I'll watch you to check you're okay. And there's always a little bit of a watchful eye there. Yeah, they're really good about that. It's funny because when you say that, it's like, I know exactly who said that to you. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's, yeah, that sort of sense of care that you get from the lifeguards is probably the most special thing about it. Like, I, I just really, really love it. And you've been further away, you've lived in other countries, and then you've come back. And I loved reading in your book about how the ladies pond and swimming in London was almost like an anchor that was pulling you back. 
And then when you've settled in London, was swimming and being near the pond something that brought you back to a particular area? Because I had that when I moved recently. The main criteria was how close am I to the Lido and my cycling distance? And that was almost like a, a radius because so much of my life and community and friends is based around swimming. Is it the same for you? To a certain extent, yeah. I, I mean... I wanted to be as close as I could to the pond. It was the first thing I looked up when I figured out where I was going to be living, which, I mean, to be honest, we moved back in the middle of the pandemic and there wasn't a lot of possibility to be too, too picky at the time. It was quite a challenge, actually, but it was the, the first thing I checked. And I was assured that where I was living was going to be okay for me to get to the pond because I'm actually living at the moment, I'm moving in a couple of weeks, but I'm living in a flat that belongs to one of the former pond lifeguards. <laughs> and so, or to the mother of one of the lifeguards, it was really just like super important to me to be able to get back to the pond as often as I could, especially this year. It's been, you know, it's been a challenge to get pretty much anywhere over the past, you know, year and a half. And so getting to the pond has been one of the few things I actually leave the house for. Yeah, it's funny that tug, isn't it? It really does kind of pull you back. But I'd love to chat a little bit about your adventures and where you've been. So at the moment, you're settled in London. But of course, you wrote a book called Turning, which was set in Berlin. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about that adventure and the story that inspired you to write it. Yeah, of course. So Turning came about shortly after I moved to Berlin in 2014. I had moved sort of unexpectedly. I wasn't really planning to move there. I was sent there for like a research stay as part of my doctorate. And I just completely fell in love with the place and it was not a part of my plan, I guess is the best way to put it. Like I'm, I'm someone who really, really thrives on, on five year plans, on knowing exactly what's coming sort of down the road. And that was a bit of a curveball for me. And I think the thing that I struggled with was like that sense of purpose because I chose to stay there. I chose to be there even when I didn't have to be anymore. And it wasn't what I thought I was going to do. And so for me, finding a way to connect to the place that gave me like a really, really strong reason and a motivation for being there. And not just being like a 20 something loafing around in Berlin, which is a thing. I didn't want to do <laughs> that. I really wanted to have some sense of purpose in my being there. And so I came up with this idea that, you know, so I had, I had moved and then I'd left and then I moved back because I really wanted to be there. And, and when I decided to move back, I decided that I was going to get to know intimately the landscape and the scent, like the and place and history through swimming. So the region around Berlin has like over 3000 lakes. And I didn't know this before I moved there. I didn't really like have any sense of how, how much swimming and just water was part of everyday life and culture for people who live in that part of Germany. And so I just decided to swim one of the lakes every week for a year. It worked out to so 52 over the course of a year. You know, I just thought, okay, yeah, this seems like a good way to get to know a place. And, you know, it was also for me, I wanted to try writing. I wanted to try writing outside of the academic frame. I was finishing my doctorate and I was so, I think, caught in that sort of rigid plan for like, finish your doctorate, get an academic job, do a postdoc and it felt so predetermined in some sense. And so the swimming and writing about that swimming, it gave me, I don't know, a little bit of solace, a little bit of like breathing room and space that I just didn't really know I needed in my life. Um, so it wasn't originally going to be a book. It was sort of like, I started out with like, oh, I'm going to try a blog. I'm just going to do this for a little bit. And then I quickly realized, oh, this could be a book. And after a few months, the blog got a lot of traction and, and then it became a book. So yeah. Yeah. And when you read it and have it and hold it as a real book, of course it would be a book because the story is so rich with all this detail about the place. And also you've separated it by the seasons. 
And the story really comes alive. It really comes across the page and makes me want to go to Berlin. I want to go swimming in Berlin after reading that. But I'm really interested how you started thinking about swimming because in the beginning of the book, you talk about really overcoming your fear from childhood about swimming and being a bit nervous around the water. So how did you overcome that and then decide that swimming was something that you would do to really get to know where you were? I think, you know, it's funny because people are always like, how did you overcome that fear from childhood? And I will say, I don't know if I ever really did. I think I'm still quite afraid of swimming. It's a lot better. But I think for me, the big thing was just that exercise of, I guess, ritual and repetition that made the difference. You know, I I used to be like quite terrified to the point of just like, I wouldn't even go near deep water. It was fine. I was fine in the sea, but like lakes really scared me in particular. I just, something about them. A lot of people say this, lakes are kind of creepy in a way. They find them bounded and spooky and, and no one wants to go in them, right? And I had this feeling for a really long time in childhood. and. I managed to sort of like eke my way into the water very, very slowly in my early 20s, mostly because I was going through really difficult stuff in life. And it was like, it was easier in a way to go for a swim that scared me because so many things in my life were really difficult. And then, yeah, when I started the project swimming in in Berlin, it was sort of, it was again, a period where I was going through a lot of really challenging stuff. I was going through, you know, breakups and heartbreak and homesickness and trying to find my place in the world and what I wanted to do as as an adult woman like I I hadn't really given myself that chance in life to really decide what I wanted to do and I guess the swimming was just a way of like I guess expressing that in some very sideways way I don't really know how to put it but the fear never went away and I think about this really often because um, I get asked this really often and then at the very end of the book the second to last swim that I do in the book I get really scared and I'm like too scared to go in the water. And it's funny to me because it's like I swam, you know, all these different lakes over the course of a year and the fear was still there. And it was just about living with it and breathing through it and swimming through it. And what an important lesson for life that that is. I think a lot of people say that, especially if they learn how to swim as an adult later in life, that the confidence that it gives them really helps them in other parts of their life as well. And I suppose for you, if you were dealing with a lot and all of that feels so overwhelming of where do you even begin to solve all these problems? Well, I can begin with swimming and taking on this challenge. And you're very open with that in your book. It's a very vulnerable story. And one of the aspects that I liked most was hearing you write about how it empowered you to be alone and how that was something that had been quite difficult in your life and then learning how to have these swims and have these swims be something that you did alone not just with other people and that there were certain lakes that reminded you of other people as well which I think we can all relate to that places do often feel very romantic or connected to friends or lovers And throughout this journey, you then were swimming and camping on your own. It's just such a huge story of triumph in that aspect. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because it was just that giving myself that space and that time to kind of be the person I actually wanted to be that I didn't really know how to be for probably most of my life. I, you know, I was always in relationships. I always sort of relied on other people to sort of tell me how to feel. I think when I was growing up and then through my early 20s, I got married very early in my 20s and got divorced very early in my or in my mid 20s. And even after that, it was like I tried to be on my own and I I didn't quite accomplish it. I was always sort of falling in love and falling into relationships again. And I think learning to give myself that permission to do the things I wanted to do in my life completely on my own, because I think up until then, I had never seen myself as an adventurous person, as a person who could go hike up mountains or, you know, jump into frozen lakes. And I think 
you know, I could have done those things if I felt like I was surrounded by a person or like a group of people who could make those things happen. I was super codependent and being able to sort of realize that I could do that for myself was the big thing, I think, and that I could be that adventurous person I wanted to be entirely on my own, which is, I mean, it seems so silly that I needed to sort of really work at that. But, you know, it was that thing of being like, if I want to go on a hike or if I want to go for a long bike ride or for a swim, and there's no one else to go with, I can just go by myself and that that is okay. But it's still, I don't know, I feel like we live in a society where that's somehow like not considered okay. Like I, I got so many strange responses from people being like, oh, it's so dangerous. Are you going to be okay? You can't go out by yourself, a woman alone, you know, a mixed race woman alone in the German countryside, like bad idea. <laughs> but it was one of those things that I think just by like, by repetition, it got a little better. That's very true, isn't it? I think often people have a bit of surprise. You're you're going away alone, or you know, when people go on holiday alone, I think sometimes from certain people you can sense that fear from them of, don't you get bored? Who do you talk to? What what happens when you go? And I'm always trying to encourage people to go and spend time on their own, and it's a practice. I have to work quite hard at it, especially if I go away. If you go away alone, there is a while where you do get a bit uncomfortable and you have to kind of sit with that and learn to enjoy your own company. Is that something you feel you've learned now or now that you are in a relationship again, do you feel like you've drifted from that and sometimes you do find it difficult to spend time alone again? Yeah, I mean, it feels completely different now because I'm also very happily married in like quite a good relationship now. And it just feels very different because I feel like when I'm with my partner, I'm still able to fully be myself alone. But I will say after a year and a half of (laughs) both of us working from home all the time and going on far fewer sort of, you know, big adventures out in the world, you know, my husband went out, he went to cinema yesterday and he hadn't done that obviously in like a year and a half and he really wanted to go. You know, he went out and I was sort of standing in the hallway being like, oh, this is so strange. Just being home alone was really strange to me. But I do feel like, like going out on my own and doing things like traveling on my own adventuring on my own is something that I've, I've kept up nonetheless. And there is always that like slightly uncomfortable moment for like, I don't know, it's it will sometimes happen when you're like in a restaurant or, you know, when you're on a long train journey where you just think, I wish I had someone else to bounce off of right now, where I don't know, you come back to yourself, you come back to, I think for me as a writer, like that's when I come back to a lot of my creative processes. And it's been really beneficial for me that I've had to actually travel alone a lot because of work, just because of doing book events and and things like that, because I use that time so creatively, like it's it's sometimes the most valuable thing for me to be on my own and not to have someone to bounce off of, because that's where I get ideas. That's where I get the good sentences, the things I want to do next. I think it's where I do a lot of my dreaming. One of the lines that I really liked from your book, I hope it's okay for me to quote you back at you, because that must always be weird when someone's like, let me read this line that you wrote that's so fantastic, was you said that other people's presence was like an anesthetic. And I thought, that was really interesting. And an anesthetic, that was really interesting as well, because we're talking about those uncomfortable feelings. And that's so true that sometimes it can draw us away from things that are maybe quite confronting that we need to have ourselves and to sit with those and either have feelings that we need to come to and acknowledge, or like you say, to have space to dream is, is really important too. So I guess you have the process of that with swimming and traveling alone, but then also with writing where there's another element of reflection too. Yeah, completely. And it's, you know, like, I can't write if there's someone else in the room. I'm I'm a bit strange like that. It was even an adjustment when my husband started working from home to write when someone else is in the house, you know, I, I was so used to that sort of space to myself. And it's funny, because I had been telling myself for years that I wasn't a person 
who could be on their own or who was any good on their own. And actually, I do really cool things when I'm on my own, right? Like, and it was, even when I was feeling sort of at my lowest, I would spend time sort of sitting on my bedroom floor writing and, and being productive in ways that I think I didn't recognize at the time as being really, really valuable. You know, I still slip into that when I'm, you know, when I'm with a large group of people or around friends, I always get to that point where I think everyone is ready to go home and I'm like, oh, I want more just because it's so comfortable to have other people around. But I mean, I also have that same sensation when I'm out in nature, when I'm in the water, you know, I want more. It's probably time to get out, but I want more. And I think for me, it's been much more healthy and nourishing and I think building of my self-esteem to spend those times out, out in nature. And one thing that I'd love to return to as well that you mentioned was that you like having a five-year plan. And I can relate to that. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a planner. And what I can really relate to as well about your story is that you knew that there were things you wanted to discover yourself and have this journey of self-discovery, but you came up with this very quite rigid plan of I'm going to swim every lake in Berlin. And with that was a lot of research and map reading. And I think sometimes those of us that are planners, we do like to have a certain amount of rigidity with our plans, even if the plan is to cut off from the real world and have a bit of nature. How did you find that balance between being an academic and being a planner and liking to have structure, but then also doing that with something that really requires you to switch off and to have a break and to be spending time with no plan in nature? I think it was the thing that taught me balance as a person. Like I have never been very good at taking a slower pace, at stopping, at taking breaks, at being flexible. I'm the kind of person who, you know, when plans change, it sends me into a bit of an anxiety spiral. And I had this big spreadsheet and, you know, there are like hundreds and hundreds of lakes in Berlin alone, over 3000 in the region. And I was like, okay, I'm going to gather as many of the swimmable ones as I can. I'm going to take recommendations. And I put them all in a spreadsheet and I had, you know, I had them in green for which ones I wanted to go to and which ones I'd been to. And, you know, a section for notes. I had all of that, (laughs) of course. And, you know, I would make these plans and sometimes it wouldn't work. Sometimes there would be a thunderstorm or sometimes I would get, you know, I'd have a problem with my bike or the trail would be as often it was in the countryside, just made out of sand. And I like, I would be knee deep in sand and I couldn't wheel my bike through. That happened quite often. (laughs) And it forced (laughs) me to be kind of, I don't know, uh, just flexible, but it also just brought these fortuitous things into, you know, into my path. And I remember really clearly there was a day I was trying to get to a lake called Helsi, which is north of Berlin. And I really wanted to go and the weather was really, really grim. And I got about halfway there and I I hit just like so much sand and so much rain and it was miserable and I just couldn't make it through. And I was exhausted. And at that moment, I came across another lake that I had, I some like random lady in the street had told me about many months before, Mitchesy. And I was like, oh, I remember someone told me about this and I could swim here and I don't have to get all the way to Helsey today and that's okay. But that, you know, like that was hard for me somehow to like let go of the plan. And in the end, Mechazi, this lake that I just sort of happened upon, became one of my most favorite lakes. And it, it is, it's, you know, it, I, I took my husband there on our second date. It's like, it's one of my most favorite places. And then Helsey, the one I'd been trying to get to, I saved it for the very, very last lake I went to. And on, on the day that I went, it was just 
probably the most glorious day out by myself I've ever had in my life. And if I had not been flexible, if I had sort of forced that through, I just don't think I would have had such a positive experience with, with either of the lakes, you know? And that happened again and again, you know, I would, I would get stuck in storms or something would go wrong and, or I would find a lake that I didn't even know I was going to come across and it would be the right one to swim in. And so, I don't know, I think it taught me a lot about softness. Mm, softness. That's, a, yeah, some really beautiful accidents there. And I guess life often ends up being a lot about beautiful accidents, but you can't have those if you're going to live too rigidly with the spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and this is the good thing. It's like, you can't take a spreadsheet with you when you go out on your bike or into the woods or something. <laughs> it was helpful to like have to leave my spreadsheet at home. <laughs> Yeah, I, me and a friend have been, we've challenged ourselves to swim in every tidal pool in the UK in one year. We've learned so much. It's been a real journey of learning about coastal communities and also about geography. And we have these amazing trips to places that we just would not go otherwise. But I do totally relate to that stress and panic of firstly, what if we miss one? I honestly wake up in night sweats sometimes thinking thinking that it's going to be a day when we think we've done all of them. And someone's going to say, what about this one right up in the north of England? And also enabling us to have a little bit of fun. And sometimes you get there and you think you're going to take a pet lunch and eat in one place and then it rains and you end up going to another village and learning to let go of that stress and enjoy the adventure and the accidents, I find very difficult. And I'm at the beginning of that journey. So I wonder what advice you'd have for us setting out both on the researching and also just enjoying it. I think make a plan. I think a plan is important so that you do have some structure, you do have some direction. And so you don't end up sort of waking up in night sweats thinking you've forgotten something. (laughs) Like I think it is actually important to have a plan, but be always willing to change that plan and be really open to the things that sort of might cross your path. When you talk, like talk to people, that's the big thing. Talk to people, Mm. get advice from locals, get to know people and understand, I think that sort of local significance of these places to the communities they're in, because I feel like that is where not only do you get that sort of like wonderful invitation to new places that you might not have known about or things get mentioned to you, but I also think that's where the connection happens that like turns projects like this from being sort of voyeuristic and perhaps sometimes like problematically touristic to being Mm. like intimately connected with place and to being, I think, ethically engaged with local communities. I think, I I don't know, for me, that was a really important part of, of swimming the lakes was, was talking to people and, you know, going to communities that I just like probably never would have as, you know, as an immigrant in Berlin, as someone who was in that in their 20s and, you know, working in a creative industry in Berlin. Like I think a lot of people go to certain places and then they don't go to like a whole bunch of other places. Right. And so projects like this take you off of those maps and they take you into other places. And I think being really open to that, it's the part that changed me the most, if that makes sense. It's definitely made me feel more confident. I definitely speak to people when we're there more than I would. I ask people about how long they've been swimming there and I tell them about what we're doing and we chat about swimming in a way that I think if I wasn't doing this adventure and having the pressure of recording it, that I probably wouldn't. And I think that's something I'll definitely take with me as well. And that must've been interesting for you because you were chatting to people, but doing it in another language, which is incredibly impressive. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was an interesting exercise (laughs) for me because my German at that point was like it was okay. Like I had I had studied German in university. So I had like I had the rules in my head. I just had no skill at actual conversations, which is often what happens when you learn a language in school. And so I could have very scripted conversations or I could plan them out in my head, but then you'd meet random people and 
you know, they'd have this like thick Brandenburg accent. And I, I would just be like, I don't know what you're talking Just nodding. Yeah, just nodding. But also like trying to find creative ways to explain to people what I was doing. Cause I got asked a lot, mm. like what on earth I was doing. But I guess one of the beneficial things in, in Germany and in German culture is that people do tend to leave you alone a little bit. <laughs> um, so if I wanted to talk to people, it was like I had to make a bit of an effort. And yeah, it was mostly in the winter that I would get, I would have conversations with people, mostly because people would stop and be like, what is this crazy lady doing? And so I would, I would get that like asked of me really, really often, like, were you swimming in the ice? Are you, are you mad? And you with your hammer, like, yep. <laughs> Yeah, I would just be there like making holes in the ice, totally chill. But it was it was interesting to sort of be forced to learn how to account for myself and to explain what I was doing. And also, I think, how do I put it, like, get over my own hesitation about speaking German and not speaking it well, because I think as a person who is big on their five-year plans, big on their spreadsheets, big on their academics, like I, I was so used to being very, very good at every single thing I did. And that was not something I was good at. And that was really, really important for me. And a, a word you used there a lot was as connection as well, rather than just communication. And I think when you are swimming, sometimes it's as small as just having a nod or a wave with somebody else who's in the water or passing someone and giving them a smile. And that's often very nice that people do feel a bit of a kinship with other people in the water. Absolutely. Especially because everybody's engaging with the water in such different ways. You have people that are there in full-on wetsuits, people that are maybe there in fluffy bobble hats in the winter, or maybe even like some of the people you encountered completely naked as you stumble across a nudist beach. <laughs> yeah, there would be a lot of, I was going to say, I was like very rarely saw wetsuits in Germany, definitely saw a lot of like butts and other parts. No, it was, I mean, it was really like, it was really interesting, I think, to sort of come up against those cultural differences in swimming as well. East Germany in particular, as a lot of sort of Europe on the Eastern and, and sort of Nordic sides of, of Europe, there's a really strong tradition of winter swimming. And in Germany, there's a really strong tradition of nudity and the two often go hand in hand. And so, you know, I was, I think probably the best image I got out of all of my swimming was I went to join the Berliner Seehunde, who are like a old East German swimming club, winter swimming club. And they swim every Sunday morning, the same lake and everyone goes naked. And, you know, they, they go even when there's ice, which means very often someone will have to go out with like big ice axe and they'll be, they'll be totally naked and just like hacking into the ice. And most of the members when I first went were, you know, at, at least 50 plus, a lot of them were older. And I feel like that's like an image I will never, ever forget. But like such a community of joy. And there was something about like everyone just hanging out naked and having their hot chocolate or their coffee and cake after swimming. And it was really joyous, I think is probably the best way to put it in a way that I, I feel like our own sort of Anglo prudishness doesn't really comprehend. I would always get really nervous about my own nudity when I was there and like no one cares. And I, I don't know, there was something really liberating about that. That sounds so joyous. And I think a, a great reminder that our bodies are strong and to celebrate their strength, because often when we have nudity, it can be sexual, which is not at all always has to be the case. Our bodies are resilient and strong and Hacking into the ice with a few 50-year-olds before you have a hot chocolate sounds like a great way to remember that. Yeah, hauling with a big ice axe, <laughs> you know, a big ice axe in the nude. There's something really powerful about that. It's not something I can imagine happening in Hyde Park anytime soon. Yeah, I feel like some folks might have some complaints. <laughs> and were there any other lakes from Berlin and from Germany that were really some of your favorites? 
Ooh, it's a long list. People are always like, oh, what are your favorites? And I, I feel like it will depend entirely on the day and what I'm in the mood for. I became really entranced, partly, I think, as a writer and as a historian with Lake Stecklin, uh, Große Stecklinsee, which is, it's, it's quite far north from Berlin. It's on the edge of Brandenburg. And that is a lake that is really steeped with history. And I was just so grateful to get the opportunity to learn a lot about it. It's very famous amongst Germans because a very famous 19th century novelist, Theodor Fontana, wrote a novel called Der Stecklin, and it's sort of famously like the clearest lake in Germany. It's a huge destination, but I got to be writer in residence at a lab that's based on that lake for a couple of years, and it was just incredible to learn about the, the research that goes on there now, but also it's, its history, which is the reason why there is research there, because it was this lake next to East Germany's first nuclear power plant. And it was, they would pump the cooling waters. So they would pump water out of a lake called Nemetsi, which is next door. And they would sort of run it through the reactor to cool the reactor down. And then that warmed up water would get poured out into Lake Stecklin. And, you know, I was assured it's perfectly safe for swimming and the water is not radioactive. There is, you know, there is a record of the nuclear power plant having been there in the sediment of the ground and of the lake. But Moreover, what was what was fascinating about this lake was that it had this huge cultural history, it had this huge cultural resonance. And then in the 20th century, in the latter half of the 20th century, came to be this place where you could really think about climate change. You could think about climate change and its impact on on us as swimmers, on on lakes, on on fresh waters, because basically the nuclear power plant was like a like a tiny experiment. It it warmed up the lake by pouring all this like warm water into this sort of enclosed body of water. And, you know, at times, I think near the outflow, they said that the water would be like 10 degrees warmer than it should have been. And over time, the lake was raised in temperature about two degrees, which is the, you know, that's the temperature we always come back to when we talk about climate change. So scientists, you know, they study it still today, because it's such a valuable, long term sort of site that's almost accidental in a way where they can really see the impact we're having on the environment. So for me, being able to sort of swim in that place, think about its cultural history, but also really understand, I think, the environmental impact that we are having on the planet. And also, I think, how these places hold those legacies. Like, it's such a peaceful, incredibly magical place. And it holds all of this history so lightly. I I don't know, there's something about being able to experience that really intimately that I'm just, I'm so, so grateful for. And I'm grateful that you shared it in your book because as somebody that hasn't really been to Germany and swam in Germany, hearing these fascinating stories about the environment and also the history, it feels like such a a rich story. And you really get to grips with that in a way that is very unique in your writing style, that is very dense with lots of information and science, but it does feel like a, it feels very light as well in the way that it's written. And I also learned a lot about lakes that I didn't know, especially about stratification. And I was wondering if you could share maybe some of the things you learned about lakes and about their science and what maybe most surprised you as you were going on that adventure. I think, you know, when I got into it, because I'm not trained as a scientist, I'm trained as a historian, as an environmental historian, which means sometimes I have to grapple with science. I I have to, you know, learn a fair bit about the things I, I work on. But I didn't know a lot about lakes when I got into this. And so I, I, you know, I felt sort of compelled to learn. And I think part of my fear of lakes when I had been growing up was about this sort of sense of like being static, of them being just these like bounded things that don't change. And when I dug into learning about lakes and the cycles of, of lake stratification and, and turnover, the way lakes change seasonally, depending on the kind of lake they are, that for me was really, I think, enlivening and somehow 
I don't know, it just completely transformed my own relationship with lakes because it, it meant there was some kind of change and transformation I could look for. As a writer, obviously that like very literally translated into like change and transformation on the page and in myself and in the journey of, of the book. But it was really, I don't know, it, it spoke somehow to the intimacy that swimmers get with a place when you swim regularly, when you swim all year you have that ability to really notice and to see, okay, this is what the lake looks like in April and in May. And there will always be that one day in the autumn when it's like suddenly the water is completely transformed, you know, where when it's been murky all summer just because of the heat and it cools enough that all of that sediment just, it falls to the bottom and everything is crystal clear again. You know, the, the water turns over, literally the the, the sort of temperature layers, they shift and they merge. And I don't know, it was it was really just a way of, you know, I, I talked about like getting to know communities and connecting with communities in place. And I think for me, having that scientific knowledge in the background of my swimming as well enabled me to connect with with the water, with with the actual lakes on terms that were just totally different from being recreational, I think. And I, I loved reading about all of that, especially everything about stratification, because my parents live in Wales and there's a few lakes that we go to there. And sometimes you'll move through a bit that feels colder or, and when you suddenly notice how much clearer it is in winter, it's really, like you say, enlivening to understand why that is, especially when you're existing and immersing yourself in nature so much to understand it feels like a special part of that two-way relationship that you are having with nature. And this book's definitely felt like one that has felt more like it's nature writing as well as being about adventure writing. And that's something that you've written about a lot is that we're almost in this golden age of nature writing now. Maybe you can tell me about some of the books that have been really powerful for you that you've read as a reader and also what you think is next in the genre. Yeah, I think, you know, as a nature writer myself and as an editor in the in the genre and as someone who I think, I think I, because I came to it from the background of studying it before I started writing it, I've always had a very critical perspective of what's out there. But right now, I think we're, you know, it's a time to be really excited because we're hearing so many voices that are, I think, just really overturning this narrative that you also get in travel writing, I think, as well, of like, of conquest, of expedition, of of that being our only mode for adventure. I think as, you know, as a culture, we have this sort of strange sense of like what an adventure is, which is somehow it's like it's always going to some place and being an outsider and getting to know it. And I think I really wanted to start to unpack that in my own work and ask questions about home and belonging. And I feel like that's happening across the genre right now through the work of a lot of writers. And that is super, super exciting to me. The one I'm most excited about is actually a new release. It's just come out last week, Small Bodies of Water by Nina Mignopoles, which I will not stop shouting about this book. It's like the best book I've ever read <laughs> because it does this lovely thing of meditating on swimming, meditating on the places we swim as a way of talking about identity and the sort of blurriness of mixed race identity and identity when you grow up between cultures and between places because water is sort of that thing that moves between all places, right? Like our bodies of water are connected. And so that book for me has been really a great intervention in what we're seeing amongst nature writers now. and. Yeah, I, I, so I, I edit a literary journal where we publish new work by writers of color and the stuff that we see there, like the stuff we publish, but also just like the sheer amount of amazing submissions we receive for me at least is really heartening because I think there was a lot of concern for a long time that the genre was sort of stagnating a little bit and becoming, I don't know, somehow just like the same old like white man goes to the countryside thing. 
but I, I really feel like it's it's just shifted so much. Some of those themes that you spoke about in nature writing about belonging and inclusivity, it's really great to see them in the literary journal that you've been working on. And one of the things that I was really interested to read you talking about was how you don't italicize words that aren't English. Tell me a little bit about what readers and also writers can do to make nature writing more inclusive for everyone. Yeah, I think so. That is, it's been a really sort of popular shift, I think, in in a lot of literature right now. And I think for me, what that amounts to is making no assumptions about who our reader is, right? Like, I think for a long time, the assumption within publishing has been that the default reader that you're writing towards is sort of white English speaking. And, you know, I always found it really alienating when I would come across a book that took a language that was fluent and normal and recognizable and familiar to me and made it other by italicizing it or, you know, just was written as if as if it didn't assume that a person of that culture might be reading that book, for example. So I think seeing that shift happening in, in nature writing and, and in my own work, I think it's been really important. And I think it creates a more inclusive space because it allows us to have conversations that aren't automatically somehow exclusive. Because I, I mean, I, I talk about this a lot with other writer friends, how often you, you, you know, you pick up a book, and you'll be loving it. And then you get to a page where you're just like, oh, this book was not written for me. You know, this book was written in a way that actually I find quite alienating that, you know, it, it exoticizes something that I find really familiar and makes me feel other suddenly in the process of reading it, you know? And, and so I think getting to a space where we can use these small practices, like not italicizing non-English words. Yeah, you're right, because nature writing is for everybody and nature is for everybody. So making anyone feel other or excluding them from that is not what we should be doing and moving forward. And I'd love to know a little bit about how that comes together in your next book, your second book. Yeah. So my second book, Two Trees Make a Forest, is quite different from Turning in a way, or maybe quite similar. I don't know. It's about Taiwan, which is where my mother's from, and is also partly sort of a biography of my grandparents and follows my own journeys in getting to know Taiwan and to connect with that, that side of my culture, but through through nature, through, you know, through hiking, through swimming, through getting to know place quite intimately. And I think for me, you know, I wrote it because I, you know, I wanted to write about my grandparents for a long time, but I also realized I wanted to write a nature book that I wanted to read, if that makes sense. I wanted to be able to really underscore the idea that if we're going to write about land, which all nature writing is ostensibly about land or place or, you know, even if about water, but anytime we're writing about land, we're automatically writing about borders. We're writing about migration. We're writing about who has access to that land. And so for me, writing my own family's migration story as part of a nature writing story made a lot of sense. So I really wanted to sort of underscore that connection in, in writing the book and to make space in the genre for conversations about migration and belonging and, and land and, I guess, power in land, because, you know, I just felt like there wasn't a lot of space for it. And I think writing within a sort of British nature writing context, I also really wanted to write a book that wasn't about Britain. <laughs> I think when I when I sat down to work on it, I was you know, going through a phase where I was really like, if I have to read another book about like some more or some, I don't know, like country estate, I'm, I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> um, and I, I just really wanted to write a book that was different. And, and also that wasn't like a travel book in the sense that I, I didn't want it to be about being the sort of like outsider on some kind of like journey of conquest or adventure even. I don't, I don't even like, you know, I don't even like to use that word in, in regards to that book. But more, you know, I was, you know, someone who who should consider themselves Taiwanese and, and felt, you know, felt almost uncomfortable with their own belonging to place 
navigating that in place intimately. So I don't know, for me, it was like also a response to what I had been reading a lot and what I'd been seeing, what I knew had been published and just wanting to create something different. Were there things that surprised you about your family's history that you learned on that journey? I mean, a lot. Yeah, I learned a lot about my grandparents' biographies and that was, I mean, they lived through absolutely fascinating and you know, tumultuous and really, really difficult periods in history. And, you know, they were part of a generation that was displaced, that experienced war. But then also, you know, they, my grandparents are from China, and they, they fled to Taiwan at the end of the Civil War, then were also then, then in a way sort of colonizers and settlers themselves. And so for me, it was, I don't know, it was really interesting to see my grandparents as, as whole people and to be forced to reckon with the fact that like, they weren't just my sweet grandparents, they were also you know, people who who did amazing things and who did horrible things. And so that was really, really important. But I think the biggest thing for me that I learned on the process was how rich Taiwan as a country, as a place is that in a way that like, I just think I had never scratched the surface as a tourist before when I would go with my mom, it, it just never, I didn't realize how amazing it is until I was, you know, there on my own, forced to really grapple with with language again, to be in that very humbling position of being a learner again. And, you know, getting off the beaten track a little bit, going, you know, hiking in the mountains and swimming in waterfalls at 3000 meters. Like there was something about that that was just not what I expected to be doing and was the best thing. And if you were going to encourage other people to discover more about their family and their ancestry through hiking and swimming and also recording this process, what advice would you share with them? take notes, record everything. <laughs> I think that's the big thing, you know, and, and keep it orderly because it's a lot to keep track of. I I wish I had better records than I did. Ask questions, ask questions of everyone you possibly can because they will not always be around. You know, I wish I'd asked a lot more questions before when I was younger and when I could have. So, you know, Two Trees is a book that somehow was assembled from scraps because I hadn't asked enough questions. Um, and it really, it, like the book grapples with that guilt, I guess, of not having asked enough when I could have. But I think, you know, like writing that process in is also really important for me. Like I write a lot about the process of not having all the answers in that book. And I think as writers, we, it's a really humbling practice to make it visible to the reader that we're also just doing our best with the story. And I don't know, I, I think it like it creates a sort of relationship on the page that way. It really does. And it invites them in to feel part of it and to feel part of the journey and asking questions is such great advice. And it all comes together so beautifully. I mean, Two Trees is also just a beautiful book name. Tell me about how the book name came about. Basically, what happened was I was trying to teach a friend how to recognize the word for vegetarian restaurants <laughs> so that he would know where to go eat. And the word contains two wood radicals, which look like little trees. And when you just have two wood radicals on their own, it makes the word the character for forest. And so I just sort of said offhandedly while walking down the street, like, oh, and two trees make a forest. And they said to me, oh, Jessica, that's a great title for your book. And I thought, actually, I think you might be right. Because the book really is, it's about that sort of power of, of nature and place and forests, but also about my two grandparents and also about that connection to language and language learning and place. So it sort of instantly became my favorite, uh, my favorite title for the book. <laughs> oh, it's so perfect. It brings together all of that beautifully. And like we were talking about before, a happy accident that maybe just you stumbled across while talking to a friend about vegetarian restaurants. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I think that's been like the big process of, I don't want to say growing up because I was an adult already, but you know, like I feel like becoming 
somehow matured in my career and in my in myself in in life it's been about accepting those happy accidents and being more open to them definitely that's such great advice something i think we can all learn from and me especially but i'd love to know what's next so are you writing anything new I've been writing a little bit, mostly shorter pieces, shorter essays. I have been trying for some months to finish a new book proposal. Not quite there yet, but actually what's next is I'm pregnant, as you know, and having a baby. And so just somehow adjusting to that, I think, and swimming my way through it. I'm currently planning to swim as long through my pregnancy as I can. I'm due in January. So the goal is to, you know, be in in winter swimming with my belly. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. But I think finding that relationship, I think, to myself that doesn't mean losing, I think, that sort of independence and that sort of spirit of wanting to get out on my own in nature while also navigating, you know, motherhood. And I'm really excited, actually. I've already been looking at swimming classes for the baby, which is was like the first thing I looked up. So, you know, to sort of introduce that love to another person is sort of the next thing. But theoretically, yes, I, I am writing. I'm writing with the hope that another book about you know nature and language and place and plants will come to be, hopefully, in the next year or two. And maybe also swimming and motherhood. Yes. Well, I think there's in the plan that I have going, there is a section that is partly about water and motherhood and place. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> oh, that's so well, congratulations. It's so exciting. And especially the shift that your relationship with swimming will now have, because it will be, you know, continue to be a ritual for you that is independent and time for you, but also a relationship with this new person. And you're going to get to see them hopefully fall in love with water as well. Yeah, I am. I was swimming in the sea the other day. It was the first time I've been swimming in the sea since I got pregnant. It was the most magical thing because it was a really choppy day and super windy. And you know, when you're just like, you can't really swim, you're just sort of like being thrashed about in the waves. And it was really nice for me. But I kept thinking about, you know, now that I can, I really feel being pregnant somehow, it feels really different. My body feels really differently in the water. And I just kept thinking about what that swim felt like for the baby. It was like, I couldn't stop thinking about it for the rest of the day. And then later that day, I felt the move for the first time. So I thought, okay, this maybe I have a swimmer. Oh, wow. And I think, you know, we spoke about strength and our bodies representing strength earlier. And also being amongst those waves and the sea being so choppy and often violent, but then your body being the symbol of strength and resilience and safety for this baby as well is just really beautiful. Yeah, I, I've been thinking a lot about just that, the ways in which we're shielded and protected by water, and how much water is given me and, and thinking about that for the baby too. It's just really, I don't know, it seems maybe a bit cheesy, but I, I, I think I'm allowed to be a bit sentimental these days. <laughs> oh, of course, definitely. And I think it will be, I was about to say it'll be lovely to maybe potentially see you with your baby at the Hampstead Heath Ladies Pond, but that is, that's adults only, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I think you have to be at least 15 or 16, but yeah, we're moving up to Cambridge soon. And so my new swimming spot will be in the river. And so hopefully the baby will enjoy that too. In the river where babies are welcome. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. It's been such a delight to speak to you today and to also dive in a little bit deeper to your book, which is just absolutely one of my favorites. And I'm always recommending it to people, especially those that are new to swimming. And also such a lovely note to end on about the optimism and hope of swimming with your new swimming partner. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Faye. It was really nice speaking to you. What a lovely chat. I hope you enjoyed it. 
I found Jessica's advice on leaning into those happy accidents when you thrive on a plan particularly insightful. You can find Jessica in all of the usual places on social media, and I'd also recommend you check out the Willow Herb Review, which she edits. There, you'll discover some great nature writing from emerging and established writers of colour. Both her novels, Turning and Two Trees Make a Forest, are available wherever you usually buy your books. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Try Hard. Say goodbye to Chlorine and shop their skin and hair products at 15% off with the code TIDAL. See you next week.